Hi, and welcome to the Drawing Inspiration Podcast. I am your host, Mike Hendley. Episode 30, Gifts, Trust, and Generosity with artist Matthew Burroughs. In episode 29, I ventured into a new area of reflection, and I talked about racism as well as some of the other recent challenges around the pandemic and just being creative at this time. And I have to say, your support has been overwhelming. 2020 has not been the greatest year so far, but from what I've read and what I've seen as a matter of messages and some of the creative stuff that uh, that you're churning out, we're going to be fine. And you know, we can do this together through our work, which can be beautiful or dark or thought-provoking or funny or whimsical. We have the power to make people laugh and cry and reflect on a moment in the past or ponder the possibility of you know something that's yet to come. We are artists. And I'm pretty proud of that. So thank you. And thank you for your ongoing support. So what have I been working on lately? I've been working on a chipmunk commission. So I did a chipmunk test. I was kind of playing with fur. And uh, I like to do this to get a sense of the feel of what I'm working on. And so I tend to do these little tests and that. And people kind of laugh because I do put a, put a fair bit of effort into it. But I wanted this chance to to play with the chipmunk. The fur is a little bit different. I wanted to make sure I got the eye right. I had a chance to play with bark. So I did this little piece. I'll include a link in the show notes. And uh, it ends up that I was doing this as a commission, but I decided after I did this that I wanted something a little bit more representative of the of a chipmunk and kind of the mischief it gets in. And the way it sits and that kind of stuff. So once again, it's I'm going for realism here. So I ended up going with a different pose. So this effort I did, it didn't go to waste because I had an opportunity to play with the fur and all of that. But the final piece is is a different pose. And so I did post a work in progress. I'll be finishing that this week, probably in the next couple of days. And I will post a, a final uh, of that commission as well so you can get a look at it. But uh, it's been great. I've had a few other requests for commissions as well, so I'm probably going to take those up and uh, explore some of these other um, requests I've seen. And uh, it, this is going to be fun. So I'm looking forward to doing some more of this. And I'll once again share this with you as I go through some of the works in progress so you can see kind of where I started and where I end up. And, you know, I appreciate always the, the feedback and the input. I'll do the same when I see your work as well. So uh, I love chipmunks. <laughs> They're so much fun to watch. And uh, so that's been kind of cool. I did uh, get some big pens. And so I decided to try some ballpoint uh, sketching. And I just did a couple of pieces. I'll once again provide a link to what I did very, very quick. But in speaking to some of the artists over the last year and a bit, I uh, decided I would try some uh, some sketching in pen and ballpoint pen specifically. So I bought these blue Bic pens. You know, it's like, I don't know, 275 for a box of eight or something ridiculous. And uh, it was cool. I think I'm going to do a little bit more of this. It's, um, it's a little bit different. I'm not going to say I love it, but it was fun to play with something different. And I, I do like that part of art, being able to wander off, uh, you know, take the little side streets every so often and, and poke around with something. So ballpoint pen was was this week and I'm going to probably do a little bit more of that over the summer. And the other path I've taken, which I haven't tried yet, is water-soluble graphite. I had a question in the past about that as to whether I've had a chance to play with it and what I liked. 
and I haven't. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to probably do an ink drawing and then use some uh, water-soluble graphite on top of that to do some shading. And so I'm kind of excited to try that. Uh, I've got a few days coming up around Canada Day, which is July 1st here in Canada. And so I've taken a few extra days and I'm going to take that opportunity to get out and do some drawing and do some painting and, you know, socially distance, of course, but I'm going to take this opportunity to explore around a little bit and do some of this work and I just haven't had a chance. And, you know, obviously with the restrictions, it's been a little bit more challenging as to, uh, to getting to places and things like that. So yeah, I'm going to do that over the next few days and I'll be posting my work on uh, Instagram as I normally do. So follow me there. So I also ordered a new pen. I ordered a Duke uh, 551 fountain pen, so uh, it's a beautiful pen, very heavy. I love the feel of it. And the reason I bought this is because it has a very broad food aid nib. So that's one of those nibs that comes down and kind of looks like it's broken or bent, and it comes out at a, like a 45-degree angle. And this one's super wide, and I've heard from a couple of other urban sketchers that they use this, so I thought I'm going to order one. It was about $45 on Amazon. I just got that and I inked it up and I'm going to have to check it out because it's not flowing as well as I had hoped, but I think I'm just going to run some ink through it, clean it out and do some more. It's uh, My understanding is it's going to use a lot of ink, so I'm going to have to order more of the uh, titanium carbon ink, which is the stuff that I've uh, put in it. That's that uh, waterproof ink. I'm going to run a little bit through that and just see if I can shake it up a little bit. It just seems a little bit scratchy. It's not as good as the two Sailor Food Aid nibs that I have. I found those a little bit more, a little bit easier to use. The ink flows a little bit better. And so we'll see. I don't, I don't know. I, I'm going to give it a chance because I love the feel of this Duke 551. It's a very heavy fountain pen and uh, it posts well, like taking the cap off and putting it on the back. It, it's 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 well so it's it's nice so i'm looking forward to that um you know exploring that a little bit a little bit more and getting into the urban sketching thing i haven't done much watercolor lately so i'm going to be doing that as i said over the next week and then i've taken time over the summer as well and that time is going to be spent on the podcast and also working on um setting up the uh, the store that i'm going to be working on as well so uh i'm looking forward to this so I'm going to keep this fairly short because I have this uh, wonderful interview, this conversation I had with an artist from London. So uh, with that, let's hit into the interview. I discovered my guest through a hashtag he created on Instagram. He has a master's degree in painting from the Royal College of Art in London and has been creating thought-provoking pieces for a number of years in addition to teaching and mentoring many students along the way. He recently created a new worldwide movement called the Artist's Support Pledge, which has helped artists around the world sell and buy work with a focus on trust and generosity in a time where the pandemic has impacted so many people. So to talk about his creative journey, I welcome to the Drawing Inspiration Podcast, Matthew Burroughs. Matthew, how are you? Very good, thank you. Good to be on. Thank you for uh, putting aside some time. I know you've been quite busy and we'll get into why you've been so busy since March. We'll talk about the Artist Support Pledge, which is uh, exciting. I'm really this is how I found you is through this hashtag. Yeah. And I think that's really an exciting initiative. And that's a bit of a teaser for, for the person listening that we're going to talk about that in detail later. But I wanted to kind of get into this understanding who Matthew Burroughs is and where you came from. Because I, we have, I have artists on the show from different, that have taken different journeys through life. 
And I want to kind of hear yours a little bit as to where you came from and wondering when it comes to art, is that something that you were, that you did as a kid? I mean, all kids tend to draw and create. Is that something that kind of latched onto you early and you carried that through, uh, you know, primary school and into high school and in, then into college, university? I had a, a fairly straightforward introduction into art, really, in that my parents are both from art backgrounds. My mum was an art teacher. My father was a painter as well, but made a living as a, a graphic designer. So I was always around art. Our house was full, filled with art. It's filled with art books. Um, and so, you know, I spent all of my childhood really drawing and making things and painting. And really, I didn't really think whether I was going to be an artist or not. It was, for me, it was just the way I interacted with the world. I interacted with the world by using my hands and looking at things and exploring that way. And I guess once I was starting to make decisions in my mid-teens about what I might do in life, it seemed a fairly obvious way forward for me to go to art school, which is what I did. I, I did um, I did my uh, Bachelor of Fine Arts in Birmingham School of Art, and then I left there. I went to the Royal College of Art in London to do my uh, master's degree. And then uh, after that, I went straight out into the world as a professional artist. I'd actually started exhibiting both in, in London and in New York in my, actually in my first year of my master's degree. So I was, I was, I've never had a period of not being a professional artist. I went straight into it, which might sound great. Um, but actually it, it had it, you know, it was a, a challenge in a way because I wasn't really prepared for it. I don't think I was mature enough really to know how to, not so much how to handle it professionally because I, you know, you could learn to do that. It, it was more about whether I had had enough time just making art and just being myself to be able to navigate both what the expectations of being an artist with being a professional. And then over the, it probably took me another, maybe another 10, 15 years before I became more comfortable with that really. And over that period, I spent a bit of time teaching in universities part-time so that was a, that kept me ticking over i i enjoyed that but there was a point when i realized and this must have been in the early 2000s i think when i realized that actually it was a career as a as a, a teacher and a lecturer always a career as an artist i was really struggling to do both at the same time meaningfully so at that point i decided well I, I've, I've just got to give this art game my best shot and just go for it um, which sounds easy, <laughs> but actually <laughs> I, I realized it wasn't so easy, but I, that's what I've done. And I've done that now, um, you know, for 20 years. So I, I've learned, I've learned a lot in that time about how the art world works, how to navigate it, how to, uh, navigate your own relationship to it. Because I think one of the things that often doesn't get spoken about, certainly in formal art education or even amongst artists is how do you actually survive being a professional? And I don't mean financially survive, I mean creatively survive. Because the two can actually be, can come into conflict with one another. And that often what happens is that people either compromise or give in. Whereas I do think there's actually a way of dealing with both. And it's always about how you find a, a, a sort of productive relationship between thinking and feeling and responding to 
what those actually mean. So what does it actually mean to be a professional artist? What does it actually mean to sell art? Um, and one of the things that I've found is a really productive way of dealing with that and has helped me enormously over the last 10 years probably is not to think that I'm selling art. So I don't, I don't consider when somebody buys my work, I don't think I'm selling it to them. I think what I'm doing is giving them a gift and what they are doing in return is funding and giving me time to make more gifts for the world. So it's it's still an exchange of finance. You know, they're giving me money. I'm giving them an art object. So, right. you know, they can think of it as they see fit. I don't mind. But it's really about how do I maintain my, my sense of the value of what I do? Because as soon as you turn it into a mere object that has a mere financial value, then you strip it of its real value system. And I think one of the things that's really interesting is this, for me, is this idea that the only definable symbol in the world is money. It's the only symbol we have that at any one time you can define it. You can actually go on the stock exchange and tell somebody else exactly how much a dollar is worth or a pound is worth. Mm -hmm. Always has a definition. All other symbols are fluid. They can be fairly defined, but they're always fluid. And especially in art, they're very fluid. They're always moving around. What, what, what does something mean? It's always moving around. So, and I, I think most artists like that. They like that sense that they don't need to know what it means. They don't have to have it defined. But when someone is always trying to define it by giving it this sort of monetary value, if you're not careful, it can, it can strip the subtlety of those fluid definitions and subtle meanings away from the work. And I think that's often what artists feel when they struggle with, with being becoming professionals or selling work at any level for that matter. So this idea that actually it's a gift, art is, is made by people who generously give it to the world as a gift and it is received as a gift. And if received and given in that way, it carries on giving and it grows and it becomes an even greater gift. So really the, the money is, I always, I'm always so grateful when somebody buys my work because I know what it's doing. It's giving me more time in the studio to make more work. And that's the greatest thing any artist can receive. That's awesome. And I, I would think then it makes parting with that gift you've created much easier if you look at it that way versus, and like, do you, do you find that easier that that emotional attachment you have with that creation that comes from your soul and your heart, that, does that parting with it make it easier that way? Yeah, I think so. I don't know whether it's whether I've just got used to that. It's hard to tell. I mean, I, I certainly, you know, every now and again, I think if I've made a body of work where it's been hanging around in the studio for a while, and sometimes that can be tricky to sort of part with a little a more, I think more so than if, if, if it's sort of made and goes. I've got pretty good at dealing with that over the years now. I don't really worry about it very much. And 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 I, I guess also because it's what I do, you know, that's how I I survive in the world. I'm I'm just too grateful when it goes out of the studio to, to really be worried about it. It's sort of <laughs> okay, off it goes. I mean it's always really it's less it going. It's more about how I continue, you know, whether I've got it it's sometimes good to have certain things in the studio that can maintain your kind of confidence whilst you're making work so having the odd piece that is sort of driving other work 
So I do try to keep those around for a little bit so that they might be driving other ideas. But I mean, what's been interesting in a way is, you know, even something like doing the art support pledge because work sells quicker on that than it does through normal art market scenarios. The turnover is quicker. So you've got to learn to deal with the, the, the work moving at a faster rate out of your studio. And that takes a little adjustment, but. You know, I, I, I don't find that so difficult these days, but I think that sense of thinking of it as a gift really does help because it's, it's also knowing that that thing's out in the world, wherever it is, whether it's in a, a gallery, a museum or on a person's wall, giving itself all the time. It, it's tremendously empowering to think of it like that rather than thinking of it as just a, a product that is diminishing and deteriorating right. as the world as things do in the world, you know, yes, it's doing that, but it's also if people live with it, it sort of slowly unfolds itself with them, I think. And I think that's a interesting time because I'm, I'm just working on my second commission. So I've, I haven't really done a lot. I did one last year and um, it was interesting when I got this request and I've had a few recently, but I decided to take this one on. I, I one of the things I said to the, uh, to the individual was, I uh, thank you for trusting me with this opportunity. Like, I feel like it's that kind of relationship, right? That I, I, I trust you. I, 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 I want to see your vision of what, um, what I'm requesting. And I, I don't know, I, I couldn't see it any other way. And it, it just, I've always been kind of worried about commissions because I, I'm not going to be the person who does a bunch of portraits. Right. And it's just not my thing. Yeah. But difficult. the request was along my, um, within my style, it was kind of reflecting my voice a little bit, and it was like, you know what, we're we're connected at this point in time, and I think your comment about a gift is a really good way to to look at it, because in some ways, this is a gift to this individual at this point in time that we've had this connection. Yeah, I, I like that. Yeah, I find I find commissions difficult too. I don't know whether there are many people who don't. I tend not to do them because of that. Um, Sometimes, it depends what it is, but I, I tend not to do them. So how would you describe your art style? Because I think if we can maybe, we'll go back to the artist support pledge, but you know, something that a lot of us, I mean, every artist struggles with at some point is finding your, your voice, your style, and especially going through with a master's in fine arts, it may be that is easier or more challenging to go through that kind of program and develop or maintain your style. How would you define your style and how has that changed over the years? It, I, I guess what you would call it in a very simplistic way is it's sort of abstract painting that looks like it's based on the landscape. And, but I don't really see it like that at all. Um, I mean, I, I came really for the last, I think probably the, the first sort of 20 odd years of my career, I, I made very figurative paintings, normally based on the human form and were quite narrative in a way. And there was a point probably about 10 years ago where I started to feel like it, it wasn't quite doing what I wanted it to do. And I couldn't figure out what it was because I could understand it and articulate it. I could articulate what was going on in the paintings and what the, my relationship to the figures and their spaces and the rest of it. But I, I, it, was if, it was as if I couldn't connect to it. And eventually, over probably the last five years, I think I've started to think about painting completely differently. 
And I've started to think about painting as a set of relationships that are an equivalent to my experience of being in the landscape. So they are, in effect, in a sense, figurative because they're about the body. They're about my relationship to, to that space, to its climate, to its terrain, to its topography. So it's it's as much about my heartbeat and my sense of touch and rhythm as I walk and move and run. So it's embodied in that way. So it's it's it has a sort of figurative element. So there's still elements of it that look like there might be figures in there. But also it's about things like the strata of the landscape or the liniments, the lines that make up a landscape. So there's, in a way, I'm drawing from the landscape and my experience of the landscape as a as a sort of as a figure in it, as a person moving through it, to try and find a an equivalent in colour and shape and line and form and texture and space. So that in a way the paintings are are a response to that and an equivalent of that. So they don't look sort of figurative anymore in the sense that they used to, but I still see that they are embedded in that experience of the real. I mean and I I actually think of them in a way as being realism. And what I mean by realism is not sort of the the illusion of the real, but actually the experience of the real and that they are an attempt to find a a really close equivalent to to, to what it feels like, to a kind of a true relationship to the world. So, but when you look at them, their colours, their shapes, their lines, they're kind of very fractured. Uh, they're almost a, a lot of influence from things like stained glass windows. And recently I've been thinking of them in other terms. So I've been trying to think of paintings as if they are basket, sort of woven baskets or stained glass windows or tapestries and thinking, okay, if it was made with cord, how would the painting be made? They're still paintings, but they are. I use that as a sort of analogy to sort of rethink the, the process of making painting. They're, they're landscape paintings in the sense that their relationship to the land and scape. I mean, the word landscape comes uh, is, is a very recent word. I think it was invented in the seventeen late seventeen hundreds, and it literally means it, the, the word scape comes from es- escape. So it was a land escape. It was escape into the land. And so the history of landscape painting really is about kind of the framing of the landscape. How did we frame a space? So the way I've been thinking about landscape really is the opposite of that, is rather than framing it, I've been thinking about how do you occupy it. So it's it's an it's an idea, I think, of nature and landscape painting that owes much more to sort of prehistory. So going back six thousand, ten thousand years when whoever artists were then made art in caves and on walls and as part of the land and it was embedded in it through it from it 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 was implicitly related to their understanding ritualistically uh, communally spiritually with the the land itself and i for me i found that a really sort of productive way of thinking and feeling about about what i do because it strips away a lot of the expectations about what a painting might look like. Um, and that's one of the things I've found has got harder and harder as I've been, as I've moved on in my career. You know, after a while, 
it's it's hard to avoid that problem of making paintings that look like paintings because you know you end up knowing a lot about painting so you end up making paintings that look like paintings <laughs> and and actually that's it's not a that's it's all okay to start doing that that's how we all learned to make painting we learned by making paintings that look like paintings and we learn by looking at other people's paintings and making paintings like theirs but there's a point where you have to face your own paintings which is easy kind of sounds a very easy thing to say you know oh make your own work make your paintings every what you hear people saying it all the time mm-hmm. it's the hardest thing in the world to do it's much easier to make somebody else's paintings it's much easier to say oh okay i know what van gogh painted like i'll make a van gogh painting it might not be a very good version of it but it looks like a van gogh painting but to to become your own version of van gogh to become yourself wholly and utterly yourself as a painter that's the greatest challenge it's that's the thing that i think all artists aspire to and it can happen any time in your career and that's what's really exciting about it it's not it's not it's not something necessarily that you achieve through great knowledge or great experience you sort of you dip in and out of it every now and again and i think that's one of the things i think keeps everybody going is they recognize it they might not know it they might not be able to say that but they sort of in they sort of feel it they feel when they've made that connection and so and then it slips out your hand again and i think the only thing that maybe experience and time has taught me is how to stay in that place for longer and to recognize it more immediately when i get there and to also recognize the signs of when it's slipping out of my fingers and what to do um so it's in a way that's a sort of strategy you know what what do you do when it all starts going wrong and i think actually there are you know there are things you can do to help to help with that um it's it's not a sort of a doom and gloom situation it's about learning you know it's all learning ultimately you learn to navigate all of those relationships whether it's how to draw a line on a piece of paper uh, or how to layer colors and how to create a certain sort of space in a painting they're all a set of relationships and we can we all know when that relationship's healthy and good and we feel it and we sense it in our work there's something just flows in it and then it sort of goes again for a little bit and then recognizing the traps in there recognizing recognizing those things that force you out of that and then learning how to navigate your way back to it i think is the secret to a sort of longevity really as an artist if you can do that you can keep doing it do you think that you know once you establish your style do you th- and and you know as artists you're always encouraged to kind of reach out and absorb and and use absorb what's around you the people you interact with the environment and you know you're looking at translating your view of that into something that you can share as gifts with the rest of the world do you think once you find where you're at with respect to all that and you start understanding what your style is what happens to that in that does it become a bit of an echo chamber where you are producing more of a similar kind of work so therefore i don't need to go for a walk today because i'm on this journey i don't need any more input because i'm on this journey does that become a little bit of a challenge uh, how do you manage that and you know is that where and the other question i'll ask with that is is that where ritual helps like do you have ritual around things that help preserve some of that yeah i think definitely I, mean, I think all artists do that don't they in some form or other i think it's it's learning what works for you i mean one of the things i'd say i mean 
you know, it can sound, in a way what I'm saying can sound extremely complex, conceptually complex, but the reality is, from a painter's point of view, is it's actually very simple. And that one of the things I always say to people when they say, you know, I, I don't, I, I'm a bit lost, I don't really know what I'm doing at the moment. I say, just, just draw something. You know, just sit in front of something and draw it and give it your best shot. Just really try to connect to it over and over again. Draw it, redraw it, draw it, redraw it. And do it in a way as if what you draw doesn't matter. Just look at it. Because really drawing is just a form of connecting with things through a line or a mark on a piece of paper or a surface. And actually it's the, it's, it's the integrity of that connection that makes it a good drawing. Not whether it looks sort of um, technically capable or not. Because actually a drawing can be technically really clumsy. If the connection's there, it'll be a good drawing. And actually, if you can do that, and if you can learn to do that regularly and more often, you, you start to sense that connectedness. You start to get a feel for it so you can recognize it. So in terms of how often, say, do I go drawing, do things like that, I sort of figured out that I sort of, if ideally, I spend probably two or three times a week, I'll purposely go out drawing where I'll, it may only be for 20 minutes, half an hour. And normally I live in, and my studio's in the countryside. So I literally go out the door and I, I can just walk. I'll just walk through the fields and the woods and I'll draw anything. I don't go with any agenda. I'll just draw anything. And it might be, you know, a leaf or a tree or a field or the view. And I personally try not to think about, I'm going to draw X, Y, or Z. I just go out and I just absorb it. Because what I'm doing in doing that is practicing that relationship of connecting is actually saying to myself, be aware, be curious, look, and look again, and look again. And if you do that, it's amazing how slowly you start to unravel and unfold. And your drawing develops a kind of confidence and connection to things. It doesn't look forced or tentative. It just it could be a simple line across a piece of paper that just follows the line of a tree, of trees in a field. But if that's what's necessary, just to find that connection within that drawing, that's fine. Yeah, that's all you need. So it's did it take did it take you long to discover that? Yeah, that I, you need that. I think for me, yeah. I mean, it's taken me it took at least twenty five, thirty years for me to work that out. <laughs> I don't know why. I mean, I think really I knew that very early on. I mean, I look at drawings I did actually when I was eight or nine years old, and I knew it then. You, I could do it, mm-hmm. and I think in a way. One of the problems of being an artist is that you're taught to be an artist. And this is the great irony about being an artist is you go to art school, you're taught to do it. And it's, I loved art school. I loved the whole experience. You know, it wasn't always great, but on the whole, it was a, you know, the best time of my life. Really enjoyed it. Loved the dialogue, loved the experience of being there, loved being around other artists. But also it threw, it, it created an awful lot of problems that I've taken many, many years trying to overcome, which I didn't realize. You know, sets of assumptions and prejudices in myself about what I thought art was and wasn't, and what I thought I was as an artist, which is more significant in this, in that what the sort of artist I thought I was, because that was the sort of artist that I'd become because of the training I'd had. And it was only after many years of really questioning that and looking around, sort of around the corner of that and actually looking at other possibilities, that I realized I actually wasn't, I wasn't that artist at all. 
I was a different type of artist, but and one of the reasons I was struggling in some ways was because of that. And I think one of the lessons I've learned is that if you're if you're not being productive in your work, if your work is slowly dragging along and you're not really enjoying it, it's not your work. You, you you're not you're not properly connected. When you're connected to your work, it it's it just flows. It just comes through you. It's it's like you're just this cipher that just allows everything that is connecting to one another to come together. So I try to use that now as a sort of touchstone. I sort of try to assess my own relationships, things. Think, okay, is this is this like dragging a heavy stone, or is this like floating like a feather on the breeze? It doesn't mean it's not hard work. Don't get me wrong. I mean, making art isn't always easy, but the energy should be to, to overcome the challenges should be implicit in the experience of making the work. It should drive you. And, you know, sometimes you do just have to push through, but I've tried to use that as a touchstone now to realize and to know the difference between when I'm genuinely engaged in what I'm really about or when I'm engaged in what I think I perhaps should be engaged in, which are two different things. And that's a tricky thing. It's a tricky thing to, find out about yourself. Some people do it very easily. I mean, I've, I've seen some people who just seem to have been able to have done it, do it straight away. You know, it's almost as if they've never not been able to do it. I actually think not overthinking things helps. I think being, having a very relaxed relationship to things. I don't mean being lazy, although it might mean doing less. And that's one of the interesting things because my... Um, sort of take has always been for years and years and years was hard work really counts work hard and if somebody's working harder than you work harder than them that was always my mantra (laughs) it took me a long time to realize that was nonsense (laughs) actually it just wears you out and it creates unexpected or kind of unnecessary um, pressures on creativity creativity works best when it's in a condition of gratitude, generosity, openness, awareness, curiosity, all these things allow creativity to unfold and to blossom. If you start jamming it into a box and then bashing it with a hammer, you just kill it. And and what the temptation often is, is when that starts to happen is, you know, people who like to work hard start working harder because they think, oh, I need to work harder. And that makes it hard, worse again. So I, I've, that's been one of my great faults as an artist, which I had to learn to overcome. And one of the things I do now, I mean, I, I work full time as an artist, so I, I, and I'm still prone to overwork. It's one of the, my, my failings in life um, is to recognize, is I, I literally kind of plan a week almost where I, I try not over overdo each day. So I always try to finish each day with enough energy that I don't, I don't finish the day exhausted because if, if I finish the day exhausted, there's a very good chance that I will start the following day in, in a not good, in a not good state and not be able to have that lightness and sort of approach to the work. I try to end the day with a, with, with a sort of almost parting with the work, like I was parting from a friend I know I'll see tomorrow. Mm. Don't ever worry it because you'll see them tomorrow. Right. You know, and actually, and if I start to ever worry it, then I just try to put it away, try not to forget it, not try not to think about it. So 
Back to the point you were saying that, you know, when you're working on something, you don't feel like it's you, like you don't feel this, feel it in this piece. Like you feel that you're working too hard at it. It doesn't feel natural. And you feel, I just need to leave this one alone. This isn't me. This isn't what my art is about. So you move to something else. And let's say you have the same feeling with that. And maybe it happens six times in a row. (laughs) What can you suggest is something that we can do to keep moving past these wonderful failures that we're having on our way to where our mind is connecting with our hands in a way that makes us happy. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a tricky one. I mean, <laughs> not, not to pin you down on something. No, no, I mean, it's a, it's a common problem. <laughs> yeah. um, I think the reality is the, the, the problem, if, if there's six in a row that are all, you're, you're reaching the same problem, it's not six different problems. It's the same problem. And I would suggest that the real problem there is that you don't actually know what, what your values are in all this. And you're manifesting a set of values in your work that aren't yours. And as in art, as in life, if you start manifesting values that aren't yours, you get very disappointed. And it might be that for others, somebody else, those values are perfectly good values but they're not yours. So knowing what your values are is, I think, one of my top tips for for any artist. It took me a long time to figure that out, that actually, I think a lot of people, when they start out, kind of implicitly know what they are because they're sort of ingrained in them. And then they often get taught out of them, ironically. They start to get pushed out through sort of education. So maintaining and nurturing and looking after your values. And I would suggested that if you can get your values down to say, if you can sort of articulate three values about your work. So for me, it might be something like layering is important to me. Um, Touch is important to me, a sense of touch, not only in the painting, that it has a tactile quality, but it's about my relationship of touch to the world. Uh, And also that there's something enigmatic about it. It's something mysterious, something that you can't quite pin down. And I think there... The three values in art that I most aspire to hold on to. Mm. So if I can, if I can make work that contains that and, and is developing that relationship, then I'm I'm probably going to be kind of happy doing it. And that could be very simple. So it might be say, okay, if I'm layering sets of relationships, that might be you know layering drawings and forms and shapes and structures and images so i might be layering some drawings that i've done in uh, whilst out walking or layering not only layering forms and structures and drawings but layering color so i really love color but i'm not a natural colorist you know some people can just put a color down and another color down it just pings Uh, that that I, i i'm not very good at that but i'm what i really love is creating color through layers so I'll layer different colors to create a kind of strange sort of relationship of layered color. So I've realized that the value of layering to me is really significant because it allows me to do everything else. It allows me to create space. It allows me to create color relationships that I can't do just across the surface very well. Um, so knowing that value about myself just makes making my work easier. So. Finding out your values. I mean, there, there are ways of doing it. You, you can actually, I mean, there's, there's a lot of kind of stuff on the internet where you can actually just look it up. You can look up how do you work out your values. And 
one of the ways I do, which with, with when I do mentoring with people, is I get some I get somebody to write down all the values they can think of about about art. There might be values they like, might not be values they like. It could be anything from layering to color to structure to form to bright colors to dull colors to tech um, to patterns. Uh, anything, anything, any word that in any way describes a value and quality in art. And then we take all of those words and we they give them uh, a value list of one to three. Three being not that important, one being significant. And then you take all the number ones and, you know, you might have maybe 10 or 20 number ones. And then you compare and contrast those and try to get them down to, if you can get them down to three at that point, that's great. But say you get them down to, say, six. The idea then is, is that it's not that the, the other three aren't important, but all the other values that you might have, all those other 15, 10 or 15 values, say, they're still, they still might be things that interest you, but they're not core to you. They can sit within your three value systems. So, for example, for me, um, you know, pattern isn't a core value but it's something i really enjoy in a painting and it's something i can use and utilize in layering but layering is my core value so you know patterns sits within my layering value so no it's not that you know i make a painting that way i don't sit down and think okay what are my values write them down and then make a painting that looks like that mm -hmm. but i think what it does is if, if you've got a sort of sense of what your values are and you can articulate them in for yourself it allows you to then make decisions about whether an avenue is worth exploring or not and how to explore it so if if you know for me for example it might be that if i decide that i want to start making work with a different subject matter rather than landscape i might say well what if i want to make some still life paintings i can look at that and go okay well how would i layer these images so it's a way, it's an approach in a way. It's an approach to something. It's not the end product. I think of it as a bit like uh, a, a navigational strategy. So if you go out in the landscape and you are going on a walk or a, uh, into the hills, the mountains, whatever, you need a strategy to navigate that landscape. You don't necessarily know where you're going and you don't necessarily know where you're going to end up. But if you've got navigational skills, you'll survive that journey and you'll probably return unscathed. But if you just go without any navigational skills, getting lost is a wholly different set of problems. So it's it's not that you end up where you think you're going to end up, but it's but it's that you're actually much more capable of navigating the topography of whatever it is and the terrain that is your world and your landscape and your imaginative world, if you like. Interesting. <laughs> you're, you're, I'm going to be uh, uh, caught up in thought, I think, for the next few days with these conversations. It's uh... It's helpful, I think, for the person listening. I think it does make you rethink what you're doing and how you're doing it. And I just wanted to comment, you were talking about patterns in your work. I don't have a lot of experience in the art world, but what I found really interesting in looking at your pieces on your website, and I'll provide a link in the show notes to that, is I could see some really interesting patterns in some of the work you've done. Like I could see fractals. I could see like a Fibonacci sequence almost in some of them. And I was thinking... I, I don't know if I'm the only one seeing that, but what a way to connect with a piece that was probably completely unintentional. But uh, I just found it, um, I, I was looking at your art, as soon as I found a couple of those, it's like, this art's talking to me somehow. <laughs> and, 
And I, I just, I hadn't had, I haven't really explored that experience before. And I just wanted to compliment you on those pieces. Like the, as I said, I, I got through a few of them and then I hit a couple and it was like, whoa, wait a second here, something, something's going on. Um, so I, it's, I, let's say I'll include a link and I would encourage people to look at your work because it is, I, I think it's brilliant. So uh, I just wanted to make that comment. But I think that just briefly on the patterns, I think patterns mm-hmm. were pattern seekers. Human beings are pattern seekers mm-hmm. in everything we do, whether it's in art, in science, in anything, in music. We seek patterns. And in a way, what I do in painting is play with that. I play with our desire for, to seek a pattern in the way things are, but also the reality that the world doesn't always give you what you think you want to see. And it's that kind of shift between something that is repeated and graspable as a repeated set of behaviors and images and something that just flows into something else that is an experience that you can't fit into the pattern. So it's always that sort of shift between, I think of it as sort of a relationship between something that's given, that's structural and there, Mm -hmm. and something that is experienced and unique and specific. Yeah, and I'm sure that these weren't intentional because I could see even with the Fibonacci sequence that it kind of was, it was organically moving into something else off to the side. And I just I thought that was cool. So I wanted to ask you, like in your role as a teacher and a mentor, what, let's talk about that experience a little bit. And, you know, I'll start off with maybe asking you, what do you feel that has taught you? What did those students teach you about you and your art? having been through that experience for so many years? Oh gosh, I've learned so much from from teaching people. I think one of the things that it's taught me, the most important thing it's taught me is a sense of openness that you you have to... I think when I first started teaching, like maybe like many teachers, I don't know, I don't know whether that, this, this is common, but I sort of felt like I was going to go in and I was going to, you know, I really was really excited about teaching what I thought would be the good students. Actually, maybe what you learn as a teacher is that the really exciting thing about teaching is not the good students. It's the ones who are really struggling. And it's not because they're not good. And that's the really interesting bit. It's because they potentially might be even better than the good students. And it's just that they haven't been unlocked yet. There's something they've not found. They've not found their voice. They've not found their relationship to it. And I, that, that took me a long time to understand that. And I, it, I mean, it happened the first time, I think, probably in about 2000, I think, when I was teaching um, a student in my one of my first jobs in universities. And he just blossomed, you know, over the three years I worked with him. He turned from a student who I just didn't think would even get through the degree to, you know, as a personality, he just opened up. He became... He became, you know, himself over those three years. And that's why, you know, for me, that was my greatest achievement. You know, it wasn't the best student I've ever had. Um, but I think he was, you know, I still think about that all the time. I think, wow, that that was, that, hmm. you know, that made a difference um, in, in a big way. So I think never expect, never assuming anything about anyone. Don't assume that because they don't have status, that because they don't have skills at that point, that they don't have the potential to do something really exciting. And actually, I think the other thing I've learned is that you can learn skills. And that's one of the things that 
really matters is we're always learning. We're always learning skills every day. We're learning new skills to do something. What really matters is what, what are you going to do with it? So knowing and exploring what you want to do, not knowing what you do, but exploring what you want to do and being aware and curious about it. And then being flexible enough and open enough to develop the skills necessary to do that is an ever on is an ongoing activity. It's forever. And that's one of the things that's lovely about it. I mean, one of the things I enjoy about coming to the studio every day is that sense of the feeling of learning a new skill, that feeling of leaving the studio at the end of the day thinking, I couldn't do that this morning. I've learned something new today. Now, you can only do that every day if every day you are genuinely entering the studio within a, in a state of openness and awareness and curiosity about what you're doing. And if you enter the studio thinking, I know what to do, I know how to do it, I know what I want, well, you'll get exactly that. But the chances are you won't learn anything and you won't have developed any new skills by the end of the day. So the, the skill learning thing, I think, isn't a... It's not... I think sometimes in teaching, it's thought that you, you, know, you teach the students some skills and then they go off and they do it. I think, well, you've got to, you've got to teach them a few skills to, to get going. You've got to have some basic skills to, to start learning anything, to be able to take something on trust. But learning trust, learning awareness, learning curiosity, learning a sense of openness, they are actually skills in themselves. And if you can learn to do that, then all the other skills start to develop on their own. They start to come along. I mean, it takes discipline too. You, know, you still have to sit and, and draw every day to learn to draw. You can't, it doesn't magically just turn up. Um, but actually, if you can do that with that openness, then you'll more likely develop drawings which are, are kind of more open and more developed in a way. And I will actually be much more useful. Do you think at this point, I mean, you're never going to stop creating, right, as an artist. Do you think you would ever stop teaching? Or do you think creating and teaching are too interwoven now for you that you need both? It's a difficult one, really. I mean, I've, I've been through periods when I have stopped teaching. Uh, but I keep going back to it. I I really love it actually, and I I, I try not to do too much because I just don't have the time. You know, it's working as an artist is, is is a big commitment. But I I do I work as a mentor in London at a studio program, which is a, a sort of post postgraduate independent art school in, in London, which is absolutely fabulous. If you're London based artist uh, or UK based artist. It's one of the best sort of independent art schools I can imagine. I mean, it's basically, if for painters, it's a, it's a school set up by painters, for painters, taught by painters. It's just, and there's, there's no, uh, it's unaffiliated. So there's, you don't get a, a university certificate at the end of it. But most people who are doing it have already done their university degree, so they don't mind. Uh, but it's just such a fabulous experience. And I, I do that about every two weeks. I do a day doing that. And for me, I just, I just love it. I mean, it's hard work, you know, teaching is hard work. It's tiring, but it's, it always challenges me to rethink what I think painting is or think art is uh, and how to go about doing it. And it feeds me, you know, because it really learning as an artist is really about sort of a conversation between you, your work and other artists, whether that's art historically or whether it's your friends and colleagues or artists across the world. It's a big conversation where we're all trying to sort of figure out a relationship to each other in the world and ourselves. And that's I think that's really exciting as an idea. And, and actually, it can be very subtle. It doesn't have to be 
you know, the art world can make it look like it's about important big names who are superstars and the rest of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have to admit, I've, I've spent my time in that world and, you know, bought into it. But I, I, I suppose one of the things that I've learned through teaching is that being an artist is not about that. And being in a community of artists is not about that. And I think of it more like a kind of permaculture, more like an ecosystem. If you get, if you only have one type of artist in the world, it dies. You need all types of artists at every level, at every age, every level of experience. That's what keeps art healthy. And if you start sort of creating little, almost ghettos of, of um, sort of power within that, I think it actually diminishes all of us. And, and I've, uh, you know, that took me, it took me a long time to accept that, I have to say, because I mean, I, I think I went through thinking, you know, I was very much wholeheartedly about trying to do my best. It's one of the things I like doing in life. I like doing my best. But I realized actually doing your best doesn't mean that everybody has to do it the same way. And that people's best might materialize in lots of different ways for lots of different reasons in lots of different contexts. And that's okay, because that's the way that the nature of our world is and the nature of human nature is and the, the nature of nature is. So why, why do we find that so difficult to, or why would we find that so difficult to accept other than to control it? And that only happens when you get, when you get power structures that want to control it, whether that's the markets or whether it's anything like that. Yeah, and I think that, you know, maybe that le- leads us into, you know, when we talk about some of these struggles and, you know, especially you know, we can't ignore the pandemic and, and the impact that's had on creatives. And, you know, it's had an impact on myself and this, this art stuff that I'm doing uh, is simply a part-time. Like I work in health research. So I'm, <laughs> I'm hearing COVID-19 every single day and what we're doing. And, you know, I talked in my last episode just with myself reflecting on this, uh, how hard it's been, right? When you you know, a lot of people talk about, you've got this time now at home, why aren't you creating the your masterpiece, right? And I think through some interesting connections, I try to follow the people that follow me on Instagram and look at their materials and comment and like, and I stumbled across this artist support pledge. And then I started digging through it. And this is your initiative. You started back in March. And when I read through it, I was thinking, you know what, this, this may work for me and it may work for others. And then um, I thought I just, I had to reach out to you and find out more about it. So maybe let's move into that in how that started. Because um, I just, it, it's, it's more than you think. <laughs> yes. And it's, it's, I, I'll let you, I'll let you explain it, but uh, I, I just, it's brilliant. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Well, it started on the 16th of March when I was um, actually sitting down to, to write some emails um, and respond to emails. And I was getting, I was noticing a lot of messages coming through on my phone from friends and colleagues saying exhibition closing, uh, work stops tomorrow. And at the same time, I was getting emails about projects I had lined up for the next three or four months that were all being cancelled. 
And I thought, okay, this is this is not very good. This is a bit desperate because I know a lot. Of, these are also artists who I was getting messages from. They're going to struggle to survive three months with no income because there won't be a support stru- structure for artists out there. There never is. Um, so I, I knew that was going to be tricky. So and then at the end of those, what we've been spoken about has been three months at that point. I thought it could be longer. There was going to be the you know the shift back into whatever normality might be. That might take six months or a year. So I, I, I in straight, it was almost like a sense of, okay, I've just got to do something right now. There's no question about it. There was no, I didn't sit down and question whether I should or I shouldn't. It was simply, I've got to do something and I've got to do it right now. So I, I had a pad at the side of my computer. I just, I wrote assets at the top of the paper and I tried to write down what my assets were that I could use. I only came up with two. And they were uh, artwork because I've got plenty of that. <laughs> so, and I knew all of my friends had plenty of that. You, you, you uh, dug deep on that one. Yeah, that was quite quick. That came fairly, quite, very quickly. And then the other one was this a culture of trust and generosity, which might sound a bit strange, but I've been developing this idea and this concept of trust, of culture of trust and generosity for about 12 years now through. A series of projects which are called our support projects which is fundamentally a kind of peer mentoring scheme for artists for artists who are have already largely had formal training not always but mostly have had formal training and have had experience have been out in the world being an artist and what they needed was a sort of support structure and some critique and some peer support from like my it's sort of People in a similar situation, not necessarily like-minded, but people in, in similar situations. So I created this structure that where people meet in groups of four, four to five people, four or five, sometimes six people at a time. So small groups. So it's quite kind of intimate settings. Normally sort of two days at a time. And I I've sort of came up with this structure over time where we look at their practice, how they do it, what they do, their, their conditions for working, what their interests are, a number of things. And this all operates within this culture of trust and generosity. And I'm very explicit about this to each group, that if we can understand that trust and generosity is a much more productive context in which to develop our own sense of self and our own relationship to our work and our work in relationship to the world outside, then we're all better off but if you use a culture, which is very common in our world, of competitiveness, exclusivity, um, and power as a means of engaging with one another and with oneself, creativity always comes out bottom. And I just think that, you know, we see that a lot in art education. We see, unfortunately, we see that sort of, um, those sort of critiques going on that are really about, power structures within the within the departments or the courses or the student body and they're not about genuinely supporting one another and being generous enough to listen and generous enough to give your all and your best to each other in a in a context where one can trust one another to be as honest as one can be and it's that you know the 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 relationship between trust and generosity is really important because you have trust if you just expect everyone to trust what you're saying is honest without being generous, then 
there's a good chance you can use that to justify saying what you want when it's mean-spirited. Whereas if, you're, if you've got a context of trust and generosity, it's much more healthy. So I had this culture in existence, had a network of people who I've been working with for years with this. And they've all bought into this idea, this is a good idea. Maybe not wholeheartedly, but mostly. <laughs> so, so all I did was I used, I, I thought, okay, I can use this network. I've got to come up with a way of selling our assets through this network. So I spent the rest of the day trying to develop a kind of economic model that would work. And I, uh, there was sort of two things went with that really. I thought it's got to be, it's got to be a, a generous act. So it's got to be quite cheap. So I created an upper limit of 200 pounds or $200. That was the upper limit that you could charge. You can charge less than that, but you can't charge more than that. So it meant that any artist can put work on. And if you're a quite well-established artist, you're putting it on at a much lower rate than its normal market value. So straight away, there is that you're generously giving something to that market and that economy. And also you're kickstarting the purchasing power of people because people will want to buy at that price. So it creates a very quick and immediate economy. Money comes into the system very quickly. But lots of people can enter that market under 200 pounds. So there's plenty of people will, you know, there's people putting stuff on for 10 pounds, 20 pounds, or 20, $30, $100. Um, you could put it on any, any amount less than that. Then what I had to come up with is, okay, but there has to be a way of supporting one another within this system. So I came up with this idea, the pledge, that you would then pledge to support one of your fellow artists. So it was £200 was the threshold. I thought, okay, you've got to pledge £200 or $200 to somebody else. Then it was about where what, where would that be? And I ended up with £1,000 or $1,000. So £200 your threshold that you can sell up to. Once you reach a thousand. Um, $1,000 worth of sales, the pledge is that you will you will spend $200 on somebody else's work or multiple works, but up to $200. So you're always putting, in effect, 20% back in supporting your colleagues, friends in your community or across the world. So what that does is it brings buyers from the outside in to buy, your, to buy artist work. But then what happens is that the artist communities push that finance back across their community because they're supporting one another. So buyers that come in might be buying and purchasing work in a much more conservative way, or they might just be buying work by much better known, more established artists. But those artists are then supporting the other artists within their community. So it, it enables that economy to develop very rapidly. And because it's not based on a, a vertical economy, which you know, which we're used to where you get more people, you know, fewer people at the top who earn a lot of money and lots of people at the bottom who work for much less. This was pushing the finance across in a kind of horizontal economy. Um, so it meant that it spread very quickly. Uh, and also I used a sort of, rather than using a sort of um, systematic way of doing it, I used a cultural way of doing it. So I embedded it within a code of conduct. So the code of conduct is the pledge, 200 pounds in. 200 pounds out at the end of that. And you can do it as many times as you like, so you can repeat that. But you are part of a generous culture. When you enter this pledge, you become part of this generous culture. And you buy into that culture of generosity and support. So it's it thrives off generosity and it grows from generosity. And if everybody in it is generous, 
it, it everybody benefits. So it's in a way when I started, I thought I, I didn't think it would be so successful. From honest, um, I sort of thought, okay, if I can, <laughs> my ambitions were fairly modest. I thought if I can help a handful of my friends and colleagues pay their rent and put some food on the table, that's brilliant. You know that that's you know I couldn't <laughs> that way. I wouldn't have thought to do that. To be honest, within twenty four hours of it going live, <laughs> it was it was pretty global within twenty four hours, uh, and there was people all over the world doing it. And people were selling their work, but they were selling multiple pieces each day. You know, not not every few weeks or every few months. Not everybody, but um, I was amazed how many people were, and people who'd never sold anything before. And so you were leveraging Instagram for most of this. Yeah, so it's on. I used Instagram partly because most artists use Instagram as their social media platform, which is very visual. Mm-hmm. Also, I mean, the way it works is when you post an image on your Instagram account. All you have to actually do is put the hashtag, hashtag art support pledge. That then goes to the hashtag page, which everyone can look at. And anyone who's following the hashtag will then see your work. Um, so that's actually all you have to do. And it becomes part of the pledge. There are things that you can do that make it a lot better. Um, and that's, you know, where people don't get it right sometimes. You can make it much easier for yourself if you follow those instructions. And if you go to the um, artistsupportpledge.com, website there are guides on there how to how to do it and top tips and how to kind of maximize followers and footfall onto your images and how to get as many sales as you can yeah and that site's fairly new right yeah i mean i i I had a lot of that information on my own website fairly quickly because i had to get it out there quite quick but i launched this the website uh about a week and a half ago now i think um it took quite a lot of doing to get all that done and it's uh you know, it took a while to be able to get the time to do it. Yeah, I mean, this is on top of everything else you're doing. Yes, right? so, yeah. <laughs> and we had talked about, like, you've been very busy in interviews and, and uh, being available for people uh, since March and all this. So it's obviously occupied quite a bit of your time. What's really compelling for me with this is that, you know, we, we live in this, this uh, culture of consumption at this point with our devices, our phones, our iPads, you know whether it's TikTok or even Instagram, it's about consuming rather than creating, mostly, for many people. And I love this balance that you've discovered between consumption and commitment, in that this idea that in doing this pledge that you are committing to investing in someone else's gift, right? Yeah. The gift that they're doing. And I love that approach. Um I wanted to ask you, you know, if you're in a situation where you're a small artist, you're just starting out, let's say you only sell $500 worth of work, um, would you still think like, you know, that's fine, you'll take 20% of that and... Just keep the money. I think that, you know, let the people who are selling well support you. Okay. So, I mean, some people do. Some people are, you know, they're so grateful that they've made some money on it that they do put their money back in and that's completely up to them you know I, I applaud them if they do but my my sense was okay if the thousand pound threshold is meant to be just you know is meant to be that that's where the support structure starts kicks in so if you want to start buying other people's work before that you know you can of course i mean i've i've bought a lot more than than necessary but <laughs> just got carried away um <laughs> but the you know, if if you're if you if you only make it to five hundred dollars or eight hundred dollars, then that's okay. You, you know, you've been supported by this culture, 
And that's what it's for, you know, it's just to support one another. So, you know, there are ways, it, it, you know, it takes a bit of work, actually. It's not, it's not one of the things I think a lot of people get wrong is they go on it, they, put, they post their work and then they walk away. Uh, it doesn't work that way. It's a dynamic economy. And it's, you know, it is Instagram after all. And it's Instagram works with, with algorithms. And those algorithms will feed and push your work for one day. Once that day is done, it's not really going to push it around very much. So it, it can sit on your account. And if somebody comes to your account, sees your work, that's great. But it won't get, it won't be seen very much out in the world. So you really have to think about that and think about what time of day you post it. Um, how much you post. Posting more actually doesn't help. It, it, it decreases the amount of pushes you get from Instagram. So once or twice a day tops, but regular, keep it regular and consistent. And that helps Instagram likes regularity and it likes sociability. If you are posting regularly, say once a day, and uh, at the same, you know, try to do the same time each day, and then commenting on and liking other people's work and tagging other people into your tags. That will get you more pushes from the algorithms. And that will get your work seen by more people. And the more work your work seen by other people, the more it will then be seen by other people. So it's once you figure that out, and it's not that difficult, you know, anyone can do it. So it's not um, it's not exclusive to those who are already popular. I mean, I've had friends who've started to do this, who never had an Instagram account eight weeks ago, set one up and I've done very well off the pledge simply by lo looking how it's done and doing it properly. If you just put work on and walk away and it doesn't sell in the first 24 hours and you're disappointed, well, you'd be disappointed probably in the next 24 hours too because it's probably unlikely to sell. Um, so you kind of have to, you have to accept that, realize that it is about... But what will happen is if you sell within that first 24 hours, often it will drive buyers back to your account where they can see other work that's still for sale. One of the things I suggest people do is if they haven't sold something after, say, three or four days, they actually delete it and repost it. So it gets pushed back out into the uh, algorithms again to push it back around. So as if you're a large artist and you have pieces that you know would normally sell um, at a much higher price than 200 um and you decide you don't want to include them, would the intent be that you take a, a series of pieces and say, these are my artist support pledge pieces, and these are the other ones? Yeah, you can Is do that yeah. kind of the intent? I, yeah, and, and I mean, the, the, the work on the pledge is the work on the pledge. So if it's got the hashtag, it's on the pledge. Um, so okay. I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that artists don't sell work off the pledge too. And, you know, if you've got more expensive work, it's a more than that's substantially more than the $200 and you obviously can't put that on the pledge, then that's fine to, to sort of direct people back to your website and say, go and have a look at other work on my website. But the pledge is the pledge and it should, you know, in a way when you enter that code of conduct with your community across the world, um, you agree to its terms and conditions in a way. You make a moral contract with your with your friends and colleagues to say, I'm going to try and sell these works at this price. And if I sell up to a thousand, then I will support one of you or some of you. And I think that, you know, it's compelling. It's compelling to, to be put into that position of helping others at the same time as getting your work out into the world and purchasing somebody else's work. So, you know, it's a win-win for everybody. What do you think has been the most positive impact for you or to you in doing this? 
Yeah, that's a really interesting one. I mean, I've thought about that a lot because it's been so unexpected. You know, I didn't, I didn't in any way think I'd ever do anything like this in my life. You know, it wasn't on my to-do list. You <laughs> <laughs> uh, know, in so many ways. I mean, I, you know, I, I get messages every day from all over the world. You know, sometimes thousands for people are so grateful, and that's 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 a tough one to take. You know, it's, you know, it's kind of. It, you don't get you don't read those before breakfast and go to work and think the same things you do normal every other day so that's that's been you know that's been amazing but i've i've that was also hard to, it was quite difficult to accept that you know it was quite difficult to accept that level of responsibility suddenly that i hadn't prepared for and wasn't expecting that was quite tough actually to sort of acknowledge I, i've got used to it now and i'm sort of happily just trundling on with it but I think in some ways for me personally, I mean, there's two things. One is just the response of goodwill I've had from hundreds of thousands of people across the world, buyers, collectors, critics, artists. You know, I didn't expect that at all. I thought actually I thought I'd get a wave of cynicism if I was honest. I, I thought everyone would tell me I was mad and crazy and what have you done? And um, there's been the odd person who's done that. But they are outnumbered hugely by everybody else. I think that, you know, there's that sense that doing something that is an act of kindness can actually be really powerful, much more powerful than I think I ever imagined. And, uh, you know, could, could you think that you would create an economy overnight across the globe by being mean-spirited? I don't think so. You know, I think, I think don't think that would work it's interesting you were talking earlier about you know uh, the idea that we create these gifts right and it's is it safe to say that the gift you've created in in developing this economy model um is maybe more significant than some of uh the creative pieces you've done and and is it feeding your soul in a way that i mean it sounds like it's it's obviously something you could you would not have anticipated you know two years ago uh, or maybe a year ago, but is it? Are, are you feeling this is going to push you in a different direction? Do you feel like in a year from now or two years from now this is going to change your course because the impact has been significant in the last, uh, you know, what three months? Uh, absolutely. I mean, it's changed. It's changed me, my work, my in every way. I mean, I uh, you can't do something like this without having uh, without having an impact on on you know the way you think, your values, the way you operate. I mean, yeah, arguably the same as I was three months ago, but my work's changed actually, interestingly, over the three months because I think doing it has given my work context, broader context, in that I've literally created the culture that I think my work should live in. And I don't, I don't mean the economy. I don't mean the art support pledges and economic marketing platform. I mean, that's one thing. That's, that's its economy, if you like. I mean that I think that I've literally taken this idea of a, a, a culture of trust and generosity and made it a global movement. You know, I wouldn't have trained, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, I hadn't planned to do that. Um, but by, because that's happened, it's had a huge impact on my work. It's given it a context. It's given it a context, a global sort of cultural context, which has allowed it to sort of blossom in a way that I could talk about things that I didn't ever feel I was able to talk about, you know, that, that I, I think that actually art thrives through generosity. It thrives through humility. It thrives through acts of kindness. 
actually, if you look at the art world, you wouldn't think that. You would think it thrives through greed and oppression and narcissism. That's what the art world looks like often. But I just don't think that's a good place for art to exist. And I've never really been able to say that. And it's not that that's what I should be saying, but I, I, I just, I suppose what I've, what has enabled me to do is to sort of say, actually, you know, it's all right to talk about generosity as, as a creative force in the world. And, and I think what's been really amazing is that I've had so many messages from other people who've said exactly the same thing. They didn't ever feel like they were allowed to say it or allowed to feel that way. And that it, it somehow wasn't the realm of art to be like that. We had to be these bad-tempered, kind of egocentric, annoying people. And maybe we are a little bit, but I don't think that's all we are. I mean, I wonder about this as well. And you, you talked about it a little bit, but I'm wondering for you creatively, obviously there's a huge time commitment doing this, creating a website, answering these questions, checking your messages. Has it negatively impacted your ability to devote time to going out and walking through the fields and drawing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I, I accept that. You know, I, I accept that to do something like this, it takes a huge commitment, you know, and it's been, uh, I, I, don't, I don't begrudge it. You know, it's been a huge honor and a privilege to do this. So, yeah, I mean, I've worked nonstop to the 16th of March, and some days it's 18, 20 hours a day. It's intense. You know, it's not... It's not been an easy ride, mm -hmm. but I, it, the motivation to keep going has been immense because I know it's working, you know, and I know that, you know, it's helping people and it's, and I am trying to slowly kind of reel it in a little bit and make, make it more realistic now so that, that it can be more managed by, uh, man more manageable for me and managed by other people too. And that I can actually start making more work again. So I am making work, but it's largely just works on paper at the moment. I'm not doing any large scale work, but I have started this week, sort of preparing work, getting ready to start making again. And just back to the, to leveraging Instagram as the platform for distribution, have you ever thought about, is it always going to stay there? Or have you thought about, you know, is it an opportunity to pull the marketplace out of Instagram? and have a separate location where artists can post their work is is are things going to stay the way they are yeah well i uh have actually been working with a guy called matt grow at mit lab in the us and we've been working on some ideas for uh, a kind of web platform that won't eliminate instagram because actually instagram works really well for this and it's massive so you can't replace instagram Mm -hmm. But what the potential is, is that we can use another sort of web-based platform to utilize the information that's on Instagram to streamline it, to make it more effective and efficient. And I mean, two things, well, three things that for me are really significant. One is language that I would, my dream, and I know this is probably completely unrealistic, but my dream would be to have it in every single language in the world. I mean, we use something like 80 world languages, but I think there are something like 6,000 languages in the world. And every day, languages die because we don't look after them. And with that language dying, so too does its culture. And I think that's not on. You know, I think just as we should care about the environment, we should care about our, our ethnology as well as our ecology. So I'd love that. I'd love it, even if it was just a pipe dream. That's what I'd really want. So... You know, might not get that far, but that's what my dream is, my vision. And on a more realistic level, um, 
trying to find a way of managing people's finances because the, at the moment it's transactions between buyer and artist, which is fine. It works pretty well. But for those artists who are doing quite well on it, managing that and managing the the £200 back into the pledge can be a bit tricky. So we're trying to think of a way of doing that. Also, um, this finding a way to streamline the system so someone can find somebody, but also discover others at the same time. So creating kind of a kind of technological version of going for a walk, if you like, where you might say, I'm going to go to the next village to go to the shop, but I'm en route, I might discover some other stuff. So it's that sort of um, a number of kind of concepts that we can bring together to create a sort of platform that develops equality of experience and access for the artists who are on it through the implicit relationship of the way technology works rather than the problem at the moment with Instagram is that, um, you know, you're, you're at the mercy of the algorithms all the time. And if we can find a way of using those algorithms to help everybody rather than just the people who know how to do it, that would be pretty useful. Do you think, and, uh, you know, this is probably a, a question you know, that's appropriate for the times, but do you think there's an opportunity to help those people who have been challenged with racism, the receiving end of that, to be able to give them opportunities, to be able to prop them up through this in a way that allows the generosity to reach them that may not normally because of uh, an algorithm or because of their following uh, or whatever the case. Do you, like, you know, in some ways just using the hashtag puts everyone at the same level, but do you think there's opportunities to help elevate those that uh, that need it? Yeah, certainly. I mean, one of the things that from day one, I decided, my, my, one of my first decisions when I set it off into the world was that uh, I was not going to discriminate on any level. And I don't just mean racially, but any level. I mean, anyone can go on it. Anyone who calls himself an artist or a maker can go on it. Mm-hmm. Because I felt like this had to be the full ecosystem of art. Everybody, of every race, every nationality, every media, every tradition, every range and ability. Everybody's on it and we're all in it together. It's a culture of generosity. So I went straight for that straight away. One of the things that we've been looking at is how do we then help support those people who uh, might not be uh, might be in positions where it's, it's trickier to do that. So for example, if you're in in a country where perhaps there are less artists or that the shipping issue, the postal issues and shipping of work will be tricky and expensive. How do we do that? So we are looking at dealing with that at the moment. And one of the problems, of course, is that when you go on the hashtag, it's also one of the benefits, is you've no idea what race or nationality anybody is, unless they actually explicitly put it on their post. So the only reason I I knew that it had gone global wasn't because of what's on the hashtags, because I was getting messages from all over the world. And for the first, probably about the first two or three weeks, I was getting two messages a second. So I was getting thousands and thousands and thousands a day. And I couldn't read them all, but I was clicking to the odd one as I was going along. And they were from all over the planet. You know, they were from every continent, from Nigeria, from Egypt, from Malaysia, from Thailand, from India, from China, from Taiwan. You know, from Australia, America, from Canada, they were everywhere, Mexico, they were everywhere. So I knew it was global. And I, I actually haven't had, to be honest, what's been very interesting is I haven't had many people say 
that it, it's not working for them. But obviously, it, it, you know, there are problems. I'm not saying it's perfect. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the advantages is that Instagram is a global thing. It doesn't matter which country you're in. Uh, you can, everyone has access to it, can use it in exactly the same way. The limit really is about whether the buyer is willing to pay for shipping. So that's always going to be a limit. I've personally not found it problematic and I've been careful that I don't put stuff on that's going to be really expensive to ship. I did at the beginning and I realized quite quickly that was a really bad idea. Plus, I know, and that, a lot of that's about working out what your, your local shipping arrangements are. So it's very difficult for me to say to everybody, do it like this, because in the UK, there are certain sizes. Once you go over a certain size, the shipping costs go up quite massively. So if you keep it under that size, then actually it reduces the shipping costs hugely. So just little things like that can make a difference. But in terms of how do we propagate kind of equality, I mean, I've my view is, is that actually it's about, we talk about systemic change. Actually, what do we mean by systemic change? Our systems are based on a uh, culture of um, growth, progress, and power. That's We talk about this all the time. We talk about growth and progress. And that there's this sort of assumption always that they are an implicit right to the way we think about the way the world works. What we don't ever question is that actually those concepts are derived from the development of agrarian industrialization about five, 6,000 years ago. And actually, pre those that period, and if you looked at sort of um, societies, hunter-gatherer societies especially, pre that industrial society, there wasn't inequality. It didn't exist. There wasn't even, um, you know, famine didn't exist. Famine is a product of, industri- of, of uh, agrarian industrialization. So there are ways of being, uh, having values and being human that don't create inequality that, that that don't create inequalities in the world. And one of the things I I've been talking a lot about with the Art Support Pledge is this is based on that. I mean, I've based it on hunter gatherer societies, the concept of dividing the meat across across the community, the concept that all welcome the campfire. Anyone can have access to it. Everyone is welcome to have food. No one's discriminated against. No one is judged. It's a system of equality. So for me, that's the greatest answer because systemic change can only happen if we have the values appropriate for the systems that those values serve. Systems aren't our values. Systems are just a tool. It's the values that change the world. So if we change our values, if we say actually recognizing and respecting every ethnicity, just because, for no other reason, just because. Everyone deserves that. Mm-hmm. That should be one of our value systems. And that equality and sustainability have to be the driving force between everything we do economically and culturally, not growth and progress. Growth and progress are the opposite of equality and sustainability. You cannot have growth without inequality. It's impossible. Because where you get growth, you create huge areas of impoverished society. And it might not be in your country, but it'll be somewhere else. So somewhere, someone somewhere is having to drive that growth by having many, many, many people surviving on not a lot to serve the few people who are doing quite well. 
That's the way our system works. So growth is an unequal concept and progress is developed from growth. So progress as a concept was developed from this idea that we needed technological progress to allow, to make it easier to grow. So we've always had technology, but the idea of technological or progress as we now use it in the modern sense is based on that sense that you you have to have, you have to make it easier to have more. If you're making it easier to have more, you're making an unsustainable economy, an unsustainable world, and a world that is unequal. So we have to actually ask questions, deep questions. And I don't have an answer to this. This is just uh, this is just the sort of questions I've been having to ask about our support pledge is, if I am serious about trying to make a sustainable model that is allows equality for all, then I have to think about what I mean when I say growth. And I have to think about what I mean when I say progress. Progress towards what? In, at the expense of whom? And that, for me, it's about redefining what I mean by success. If success is, is more growth and more progress, then that success is born on inequality, on inequality and is built on the foundations of an unsustainable and unequal world. But if success can be a society that supports its peers and its colleagues and its friends and its communities and creates a sustainable relationship to the environment and to the variety and rich diversity of cultures, human cultures in that environment, then that's success, I think. Very profound words. So I wanted to, before I ask you about homework, mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you, as a creator, creator of art and a creator of this uh, initiative, where do you see yourself in two years? Either with respect to this or with respect to your art? Do you have a sense of uh, where you want to be or where you'd like to be? You know, that's a really difficult one to answer right now because I am mm-hmm. right in the middle of trying to develop the future you know, the, the plans for where our support is going to go as a, an enterprise, how it's going to be funded, how it's going to be managed, where we go f- next over the next six months, the next year. And that's that will have a direct impact on what my life looks like. Um, I have a pretty good idea how I'd like to sort of make sure that stays fair on a fairly even keel. So I don't, I don't want it to sort of take, take over my life, really. I, I want to... Mm-hmm. My, my expectations are to, are to be in the studio every day. And that's what I'm still working towards for the next few weeks, hopefully. And in terms of work, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm busy at the moment actually preparing new, new frames and stretches, a new body of work. And a lot of that work is actually based on many of the drawings and small paintings on paper I've done on the Art Support Pledge. So developing that really and, and developing a series of work which... I think manifests my my thoughts and feelings and ideas about a world and a culture of generosity and sustain a sustainable and equal world. I think that that has to be central to the way I think and feel about the world. Excellent. I, I will be watching. Um, I'm really. Uh, I think I'm going to have to. I don't know. I'll teach the algorithm to put your <laughs> your stuff above everything else. Uh, but uh, I, I really. I'm looking forward to what you're going to do with this and with your work over the next few years. So, uh, um, now I wanted to ask you, I always do this with every guest. Um, you have some homework that we can pass on to the listener to say, you know, 
beyond listening to these wonderful words and, and possibly getting involved with the Artist Support Pledge, what can they do to help move their craft forward? I think one of the things I learned to do, almost by default, but it's it's still, to this day, one of the most productive things that I do as an artist, is I call it slow walking. And I basically go for a walk really slowly with a sketchbook. And the idea is that you're going so slowly that you develop this curiosity and awareness for what's around you and just draw anything, everything, anything that, you know, stick on the floor, the trees, the buildings, a car going past, but do it, walk really slowly. So you might only walk 50 meters or, you know, a block. That's okay, but develop this slowness because slowness develops curiosity, slowness develops awareness. And we're always, I mean, I'm, I'm terrible for this. I'm always in a hurry. So actually forcing myself to do things slowly teaches me to draw, teaches me to be aware, teaches me to be, to look. Because when we're in a hurry, we don't look. So I think walk slowly. And actually, another, actually on the same point, when you go to the studio in the morning or whenever you get to the studio, walk through the door slowly. It's interesting what difference it makes to the day. And try to start the day slowly. Just take your time. And it, it does kick in all of those functions of awareness and curiosity. Huh. That's good advice. I, I do find that I've I've tried, you know, going for walks and drawing. And it is always this kind of like, I gotta move along because I know there is a pond up Oof. here and there may be a heron. I better hurry up and get there because that'll be a much more interesting subject where I may be walking past something really interesting. Yeah. Uh, the walk solely I, I'm gonna have to try that. I've got a fairly large yard. I'm going to go out right after this, I think, and go for a, a slow walk and uh, bring a pad with me. That's brilliant. Thanks, Mike. So um, thank you so much for this, Matthew. I really appreciate your time and you being generous in, in providing this gift through the Artist Support Pledge and for the beautiful artwork that you've done that has caused me to, to think differently about things. And uh, I'm anxious to be uh, flipping through the rest of your work as well. And so I wanted to ask you, uh, where can people find you? Obviously, Instagram would be, and maybe you can talk about those the, the sites and locations where people can find you online. Yeah, so if, on Instagram, it's Matthew Burrows Studio, so at Matthew Burrows Studio. Mm-hmm. And on my website is www.matthewburrows.org, or my gallery, which is vigogallery.com, which is V I G O gallery.com. Okay. And then the support pledge uh, website is artist. Supportpledge.com. Yeah, at, uh, the the account the uh, the Instagram account is at our support pledge. Okay. The website is www.artsupportspledge.com, and obviously you just go and have a look at the hashtag. So just follow the hashtag, and you can see. I think there's two hundred nearly two hundred eighty thousand. I think I haven't looked since it went over two seventy, but so getting on for you know three hundred thousand posts now. Right. Well, I'm going to be anxious, and people should also, when they pull up the hashtag, you can click on that little recent yeah. item, and it will show you the most recent. Yeah, that's always is, a good uh, trick. Which is kind of fun. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much. Uh, this is um, far deeper than I thought it would be, but I, I'm so thankful that uh, you were able to share your knowledge on art and uh, generosity, just understanding our culture, and uh, I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Mike. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Show notes, including links to everything Matthew and I spoke about, can be found at drawinginspiration.fm slash 30. You can find links to all my social media accounts at drawinginspiration.fm. 
including my Instagram, which is Mike underscore Hendley, where I post all my art. Follow me or tag me so I can see what you've created recently. Until next time, be kind to one another and keep drawing. Theme music for this podcast is Acid Jazz, provided by Kevin McLeod. Thank you.